He took the opposite approach and collected at the highest levels and with great intellectual depth and foresight across 500 years, which if you can do it, is, is, is the fact is extraordinary. In most cases, that leads to making many mistakes. Hi, I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. A Glittering Forest with a Floor Covered in Leaves by Gustav Klimt. A Country Road Painted with Psychedelic Purples, Greens, and Pinks by David Hockney. A Tangle of Loping Lines Against a Gray Background by Bryce Martin. Most of us have encountered art like this on the walls of a museum. As a matter of fact, these particular works have been shown at LACMA, the Guggenheim Bilbao, and the Serpentine in London. But after those shows closed, they were all packed up and sent back to the same owner. The owner's name was Paul Allen. Paul Allen is a bit of a legend in art collecting circles. Part of that was because of his fortune. When he died in 2018, Allen was the 44th richest person in the world. Another part of that legend was his secrecy. Allen was notoriously private about the art he collected. Although he did lend works to museums around the world, he was not always identified as the owner, and he never appeared in an auction room holding a paddle. Allen was born in 1953 in Seattle and became friends with Bill Gates in high school. They co-founded Microsoft together in 1975 and ushered in the microcomputer revolution. But Paul had a lot of other interests, too. At the age of 35, he became the youngest owner in the NBA when he bought the Portland Trailblazers. He also owned the Seattle Seahawks and founded museums in his hometown dedicated to vintage computers, military aircraft, and pop culture. For most of his life, art remained a more private passion. But four years after Allen's death from Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2018, his estate is selling a portion of his art collection, more than 150 lots to be exact, at Christie's. And for the first time, the public is able to get a brief glimpse at the many treasures Allen acquired altogether before they likely disappear into private hands again for who knows how long. The collection is estimated to fetch more than $1 billion, with all the money going to charities Allen supported during his life. It's pretty much guaranteed to become the most valuable collection ever sold at auction. So how does one man assemble such a valuable trove of art in a relatively short amount of time? And how does that kind of collector track down, evaluate, and live with art? What makes someone a good art collector in the first place? We spoke with two experts to find out. I'm Maria Lewin. I'm the director of the Paul G. Allen Collection, and I joined Vulcan in 2016. I'm an art historian by training. I'm also a certified appraiser. Prior to joining Vulcan, I worked for a number of years in private wealth management. So I come at art from both a financial as well as an aesthetic standpoint. Hi, I'm Max Carter. I'm the vice chairman of the 20th and 21st century art department at Christie's in America. I've been overseeing the auction of the Paul Allen Collection. Paul Allen didn't start collecting until his 30s. As a child, he spent hours flipping through a book about Picasso's late career that he found lying around the house. I know he grew up in a family that encouraged creativity. He was the son of a librarian and a school teacher, and both him and Jody had a very rich upbringing when it came to art in all its both performing as well as visual arts. He was interested in science, and music early on in his life. 
and was a very voracious reader. He was exposed to the arts from a very early age. And then, of course, there was this very sort of life-changing moment when he went to the Tate in London and he experienced Turner and Liechtenstein. And that kind of blew his mind. And I think those were early catalysts. As the legend goes, Alan caught the collecting bug when he saw pop paintings by Roy Lichtenstein and moody monumental landscapes by J.M.W. Turner on a visit to Tate Britain in London in the early 1980s. He realized that he might be able to not only look at this kind of art, but live with it. And that realization set him on a three-decade collecting journey. I asked Maria what it was like to work with Paul during that time. A privilege, I would say, certainly a highlight of my career. We are a close-knit team here, so being with someone who is that smart forces you always to be on your A-game, in the best sense of the word. So, you know, in my mind, he was always three or four steps ahead in many of the conversations we had about art and other life matters and whatnot. So it was always very interesting for me to sit down and discuss an artist or things he was interested in and understand where he was seeing this from, a very unique point of view, a very open individual to other people's opinions as well. So it was very active conversation. Paul was a busy guy. But for him, art collecting wasn't work. It was pleasure. So he made time for it. He didn't take anything for granted. So from my perspective, everywhere he went, I think he had always a sense of novelty. He did travel widely. I mean, he was on the go quite a bit. And I think that moving in different circles and meeting people from different walks of life was also very enriching. I think also his visits to museums, which continued throughout his life, and art fairs and biennials are always a source of inspiration. We go to art fairs and we would bring things that we thought were novel or interesting, and he would do the same. It was a very much of a very rich dialogue. There were several locations around the world which he was very interested in visiting and visited often, and London is one of them. So is Paris, Venice also New York. He was also an avid traveler to Africa. So I think there are numerous locations and the institutions that are there that always warranted visits by him. Some people got a preview of Paul Allen's collection in Seeing Nature, an exhibition that traveled to museums around the United States in 2015. Max still remembers a few of those pieces. I'd seen the great Freud masterpiece. I'd seen a number of the works in an exhibition of his collection called Seeing Nature, which was done a number of years ago. One of the British painter Lucian Freud's most famous works, Large Interior W11, After Watteau, is more than six and a half feet tall and wide. It shows four figures squished next to each other on a bed. Freud's former lover, her son, the artist's own daughter, and the woman who was his lover at the time. Even though they were right up against each other, they each seem to be occupying their own universe. Christie's expects it to bring in more than $75 million. And that was just one of Max's highlights. Undoubtedly, at the top would be the Seurat, which is one of the two or three rarest works of art, certainly in the 19th century field in private hands. This painting from 1888, a small version of the painting known as the Three Models, packs an enormous punch. Estimated at more than $100 million, it is a picture that pointillist pioneer Georges Seurat painted of his own studio. In it, the artist collapses time and space, showing a model in three poses. Standing, 
nude, confronting you, sitting on a stool and putting on green socks, and sitting down with her back facing the viewer. Hanging on one wall is Seurat's most famous painting, A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. It's one of a handful of the most important paintings Seurat ever painted. It's an icon of pointillism. And as a technical accomplishment, you really need to see it to grasp this. I certainly have never seen anything like it at Christie's. I have colleagues at Christie's who started in the 1960s who said that this is the finest painting that they'd ever seen. It's a special piece of art history. Seurat died when he was 31 and had a very painstaking, meticulous process. So he painted very few oils. It's a unique work of art. It's a chapter of art history unto itself. Its owners are some of the great collectors of the last 120 years. Its first great owner was Alphonse Kahn, who was the basis for Charles Swan and Proust. There was John Quinn, who was the great organizer of the 1913 Armory Show in New York, where this painting hung. And then Henry McElhane, who's one of the great collectors in Philadelphia. It was sold at auction once at Christie's in 1970 when, when it made over a million dollars, which was a colossal price for the time. And even then was one of the two or three rarest works of art to be sold since World War II. I asked Max to pick one more standout work from the collection. Just to show the range, I'm going to say the Botticelli. The Botticelli is a 24-inch circular painting made in the 1480s. It depicts the Virgin Mary with a plump baby Jesus in her lap, surrounded by angels as she writes a hymn. Everyone's heads are surrounded with the thinnest of golden crowns. Christie's estimates it will make around $40 million. The more I look at it, the more beautiful I find it. It's one of Botticelli's signature images. It relates to the great painting at the Uffizi, awfully autographed works by Botticelli, of this quality rarely, rarely occur at auction. Some collectors do it for social status. Some do it because they have a fundamental urge to own beautiful things. Alan definitely wanted beautiful things, but he also seemed to be interested in engaging with these artists as thinkers and creators from across time. When you look at what drove him, there was certainly a passion for sure. It wasn't because he needed to check any boxes or he wasn't in pursuit of something to complete something else. He just pursued what he was interested in. And that manifests itself throughout his collection in a wide variety of artists and questions that those artists were asking. The other thing that I think sets Paul aside from perhaps other collectors at that same scale of acquisition or scope is essentially his knowledge. He was very interested in the artists he collected. He read avidly about them and about their ideas and what they were trying to accomplish, essentially. So it is in that pursuit of others' ideas and information. I felt like that was the driver. Collectors can be motivated by the heart or the head. Heart collectors are driven by art that makes them feel. Head collectors are driven by art that makes them think. Paul Allen, it seems, was a little bit of both. As the saying goes, you may have a change of heart, but if it leads with the heart, you're always going to be okay with an acquisition, even though, of course, the mind aspect of it, conducting that due diligence, it's very important. I don't know any sophisticated collector in this day and age really doesn't think of it in that way, or there is some consideration of that. Because there's some obviously important financials associated with owning art. Again, whether it's in storage or insurance or any other aspect of having more than one piece, it's important to consider. But I don't think you can go wrong with buying with the heart. That is, I think, in a nutshell, what he did. It also helps to have a good eye. (laughs) Not everybody has that. 
new collectors or collectors who come to us looking for advice, the advice tends to be look around, learn as much as you can, and then focus on a certain artist, a certain period, a certain style, a certain medium, because you're going to have a greater chance of success by collecting in depth and with seriousness that way. He took the opposite approach and collected at the highest levels and with great intellectual depth and foresight across 500 years, which if you can do it, is, is, the effect is extraordinary. In most cases, that leads to making many mistakes and having very variable quality. So what I would say is, this is a collection that is truly the peaks of the various mountains across 500 years of Western art from late 15th century Botticelli through the handful of the greatest paintings of the late 19th century, Cezanne, Van Gogh, Seurat, Gauguin, through to the great modern British artists of the post-war era, of course, Lucien Freud, but also Hockney and Bacon, and works all the way up to the 2010s. So it's not just that it's quality or that it's on an absolute value. They're expensive works of art. It's that these are masterpieces truly over 500 years, which outside of encyclopedic museums, you almost never see. I asked Maria what made Paul such a keen-eyed collector. Curiosity, for sure. He was a very curious individual and a polymath, not to overuse that word. He was interested in such a myriad of areas that somehow all are interconnected as well, be it science, technology, thinking about the future, wildlife, nature, as it manifests in landscape painting. From my conversations with Paul, he never saw himself necessarily as a collector, quote-unquote. He did consider himself a steward and called himself a steward of these works so that he knew that they pass through you and it's your responsibility to take care of them and enjoy them whilst they're in your quote-unquote custody. But he didn't feel necessarily this sense of ownership that perhaps other collectors feel or possessiveness or anything like that. He was a voracious reader and very knowledgeable in many fields. He traveled worldwide. He had the opportunity and the means to do so. And I think that lends itself to having different conversations. He was always open to learning from other people in other fields. So all of that really sort of came together and it sort of manifested itself in his interests in acquiring works of art to live with. Max had a similar take. It takes profound intellectual curiosity. It takes great dedication and relentlessness. I and mean, he started his first major acquisitions were around 1992 and he bought all the way into the final year of his life in 2018. So a long period, but by certain collecting standards, a compressed period. And if you want to buy at the top, at the various highest levels, and you have few opportunities to find some of these works of art, so you have to buy with great decisiveness. Buying decisively and with a great eye and with great curiosity, you end up with great results. But how much of Alan's hot streak came from being in the right place at the right time? Did he just happen to be buying when other important collectors happened to be selling? How much of all this was luck and how much was dogged pursuit? You can only be lucky a handful of times. A lot of it is being decisive, having a wonderful eye and determined pursuit. This was someone who really bought in a serious fashion for 26 years. And if you apply someone with a world-class eye and a world-class brain with the determination to do something, good things will result. And how much of that success was the result of having a world-class budget? There's a lot of people with world-class budgets, though. The achievement is immense and unique. But Paul Allen was able to collect at a level that most people couldn't dream of because he could afford to buy the very best. For every work he decided to buy, there were dozens, if not hundreds, he decided to pass on. The aesthetic element had to be, first and foremost, something he was interested in. Condition was important to him as well. He collected artists that he was interested in depth. So 
having the quote unquote the luxury to acquire more than one piece by an artist allows you to see sort of more of the full gamut of the work that the artist was interested in and what they did over a period of time. The one thing that I would say is that he was interested in quality. If there was a specific work that he was interested in, but it wasn't perhaps the best example of that artist's oof, then he would definitely look at various things. One thing that I would say I personally never experienced with him was a sense of you have to have this specifically necessarily. And that is actually a very smart way to collect because when you're in his position, you might not be offered always all the best things, but there are some phenomenal things that come your way. And knowing how to differentiate between the two is key to building a really amazing collection, a very strong collection. And he was able to do that. He followed his own sense of what he liked and what was top-notch quality. I've heard before that there are two types of collectors. One is the checklist collector who carefully assembles a hit list of what they want to buy and does not deviate. The other is the impulse collector who is willing to throw out any plan they may have when they see something they love. Art does grant collectors social standing and whatnot. We've all read about that, but I think Paul was in a league of his own. I personally never experienced that he bought anything other than because he wanted to acquire it, not because he thought that would make him XYZ or whatever. He was very interested in knowing what other people saw in works and always learning from other people's opinions. But he was ultimately his own person when it came to acquisitions and deciding what he loved, what he wanted to live with. And that is immensely important. That is why the collection speaks to his taste. You could say that all that really unites the works in the Paul Allen collection are that they were owned by Paul Allen. There are the lyrical abstractions by Kandinsky, celestial and string theory-inspired paintings by Mildred Thompson, pointillist works by Seurat, and cerebral neo-data work by Jasper Johns. For Maria and Max, these works all have a few more things in common. When I look at the Kandinsky or Clay, and then I look at Mildred Thompson, for instance, at first glance, not see the connection between these artists, all working in abstraction. There's a connection there with music. Again, there's this sort of layered interest that Paul had, and they manifest themselves also with physics in the case of string theory and Mildred Thompson's work. And he really didn't know much about her work. He saw her work for the first time at an art fair, at the Seattle Art Fair. Didn't know anything about Mildred Thompson's background and just was drawn to the work directly. And then as he found more about the work, it kind of all fell into place. So there are some common threads like abstraction, figuration, color, music, sciences, futuristic thinking. All of these things kind of come together in many of the artists that he was interested in. If nothing else, they were all very much groundbreaking in what they were pursuing. And their ideas were new. They were pushing boundaries. So I think that is definitely something he was maybe intuitively or very consciously driven towards. You look at links between artists like Seurat and Jasper Johns, and there's a number of very important works by Jasper Johns in the sale. And these were artists who looked at the world in a different way. Obviously, Seurat sort of breaking down images into their component parts into what we would refer to as pixels. Today, you have Jasper Johns doing something similar, kind of exploding imagery. Also, artists who reassembled those images in different and interesting ways. And I think what unites these artists with the collector is he had a very unique 
view and perspective on the world. I mean, we've used the word visionary as the property title, not as a throwaway, but because it really is how he looked at the world in a different way and was drawn to artists who, like him, looked at the world in a different way and were innovating in varying manners and who essentially painted or sculpted beyond time, who weren't simply in step with what other people were doing. I wondered if Alan's background as a computer programmer influenced the way he looked at art. Seurat breaks down images into tiny dots, and Jasper Johns explores numbers and sequences. They share an interest in breaking things down and exploring how they work. I don't think that's a stretch at all. I think that's true. There are many, many paintings which have great decorative beauty, but these are all very cerebral works of art. You know, Seurat was heavily influenced by scientific and color theories and color contrast, and it was not a rapid, improvisatory way of painting. It was very thoughtful. Michael Crichton, the novelist and screenwriter, was a great friend of John's and wrote about John's. And he said, and I think it's true that John's is to the pop artist as Manny is to the Impressionist. And there's, of course, a great Manny in the collection and a great John's. And they're very aesthetically different, but I think they're united by the sense of rigor and thought. And Manet being the father in some ways of Impressionism, but also standing slightly apart and is slightly difficult for some people to understand. And ditto John's standing at the beginning of the pop movement and doing something that is slightly different. Max pointed out another thread in the collection. Many of the works previously appeared in exhibitions that were watershed moments in art history. One of the other interesting through lines of the collection, which I don't know whether it was a conscious one or not, and what, something that was deliberate on Paul Allen's part, but many of the key works in the collection were in between the late 19th century and early 20th century. There were a number of really watershed exhibitions of modern art in Europe and in America the first exhibitions of certain artists. So for Van Gogh in the collection, there was one great retrospective shortly after Van Gogh died early in the 20th century, 1905, at the in Amsterdam. That was the moment when a lot of people really discovered him, both younger artists and the European audience for the first time. The Van Gogh was in that show. There was a show in 1910 of the post-impressionist art called Manet and the Post-Impressionists, which Roger Fry coined the term post-impressionism for in London. The Gauguin in the collection was in that. In 1912, there was a really famous show in Cologne called the Sonderbund, which was the inspiration for the 1913 Armory show, the Van Gogh, and another work by Edmund Cross was in that show. In 1913, there's the Armory show that the Seurat's in, and so on and so forth. And you have these really important moments where other artists are looking at what each of the others was doing. And finally, MoMA's first show in 1929, when the museum was founded and they had no permanent collection, they had to have an emblematic first show to, to sort of describe what their project was. It was a show for artists. It was a show of Cezanne, Van Gogh, Seurat, Van Gogh, who are the four sort of pillars of this collection. You have a masterpiece example by each because these were considered the four artists through whom everything that came after it that was good flowed. And in, actually in 1936, Alfred Barr, who's the founding director of MoMA, did a famous show called Cubism and Abstraction. And very famously, he was very into taxonomy, into kind of breaking things down into kind of through lines and chronologies. And on the cover of the catalog, he did a kind of a chronology a diagram that he'd drawn out with the various movements of modern art in the early 20th century sort of charted. And at the top, at the sort of Mount Rushmore, were those four artists through whom everything else flowed. And again, that's the same thing with the collection. When Alan started out collecting, it was just him and a few friends and advisors. But over time, he built out a major apparatus to oversee an increasingly large portfolio of art. 2016, I was working as a consultant. And at the time, the current director was interested in having me join the team. We were a team of 14 people, and they needed someone to assist with collection development. And 
that is an area that is near and dear to my heart and to do it for a very active collector such as Paul was a phenomenal opportunity. So what exactly does a 14-person team managing an art collection do? Do they each have different areas of art historical expertise? Not necessarily with regards to art history, but certainly the expertise in different areas of the art ecosystem. We have a very robust team of registrars, all of them in different areas or having different areas of expertise. We have registrars that focus on loans and we have registrars that focus on documentation or data management. They each have their own sort of niche area of expertise. I mentioned we had a research curator and a chief curator on hand. Our curatorial initiatives have shifted because we are now in a state. We have been for the past almost four years. And then there's the collection development side of things, sort of the acquisition and the deaccessions collections manager. So that pretty much rounds the staff. And yes, we all have our very defined roles. It's one of the things that attracted me to work in this position is how professional everybody is here, that everyone has very specific expertise and background. And we all work together to serve the collector, in this case, now the estate. The team became a well-oiled machine that tackled everything from condition reports to cataloging to loans. We treated every single work performing our same sort of checks and balances, as it were. I think that's actually very important in terms of also maintaining documentation for the collection. So everything we did, there was a process to it. It was a very nimble process. And we have great professionals working here, many of them with institutional backgrounds. So I know it may sound daunting or even onerous to do that, but it really isn't from our perspective. The due diligence conducted to acquire a multi-million dollar work of art or a several thousand dollar work of art was more or less the same. There is also considerations when you look at old masters, for instance, that require perhaps more specialized consulting from conservators and such. And we have a robust network of independent conservators we consult with and art historians, museum staff that we work with as well. So we have ways of also cross-referencing the information we receive to make sure we're on the up and up. According to Maria, Alan liked art to be seen, whether on the walls of museums or in his own homes. He collected what he loved and he liked to be surrounded by pieces that he loved. He didn't acquire works to be placed in storage, for instance. He absolutely enjoyed living with art. He was a very generous lender of artworks. And when they came back from exhibitions, we did not keep them in storage for long. As soon as they were condition checked, they went back on the wall. So he was very happy to see these artworks back. They were a source of inspiration to him and uh, enjoyment. Like any art enthusiast, Alan had his favorites. The Gustav Klimt comes to mind. That was an absolute favorite. He absolutely loved the Cezanne Mont Saint-Vitoire as well. He collected O'Keeffe in depth. Having deep holdings on certain artists, it is an absolute privilege because that also allows you to revisit certain works by that artist, even if some go out on loan. So we would do that often. So an O'Keeffe would be refreshed with a different O'Keeffe, for instance. Most of us swap our closets out in the summer and put our winter clothes in storage. Paul Allen and other top art collectors do a version of that. But instead of sweaters, it's multi-million dollar works of art. Every so often, Paul would delight in refreshing whatever installation he had at home. 
We had two curators actually working in our team and they did refresh a certain properties. If he had purchased something that would immediately or fairly quickly go on a wall unless it was going on loan because he obviously wanted to enjoy it. We're also very careful, have always been to ensure that works are rotated for condition purposes. So ensuring, especially when it comes to photography, that works are not overexposed and finding the best possible location for a work was sometimes tricky because you want to make sure that it's the right location depending on the medium. In many cases, the works hitting the auction block are almost certain to set new records for the artists because nothing of their caliber has ever been sold publicly before. In cases like these, how does an auctioneer determine the estimates? For certain works in the collection, let's say the Manet. The Manet is an extremely rare, it's one of two paintings that Manet painted in Venice. The Alan Manet is the only Venetian Manet. There is no comparable for it. There's not much you can compare it to. Manet's rarely, rarely appeared auction to begin with you peg it against what other Impressionist masterpieces have made, what the best figurative Manet has made, which is 65. So that's how you approach it that way. For the Cezanne, where the estimate's 120, where we're in uncharted territory, the record for Cezanne is currently 60. You look at private transactions. Another month on Victoria, which sold more than 10 years ago for over $100 million. And that's how you peg that. And then for the Surah, you look at what the greatest works of art that have traded privately or publicly ever in the last 10 years. For a work of art like that, there is no comparable. Okay. I'm going to be vulnerable with you right now. I have never totally gotten Cezanne. La Montagna Saint-Victoire, made between 1888 and 1890, is one of the crown jewels of Allen's collection. It carries an estimate of $120 million. I asked Max to explain exactly how he came up with that figure. You've come to the right place. I adore Cezanne. He's probably my favorite artist in the category. I think he's the father of everything that mattered about 20th century painting. It's not just the mountaintop. It's the summit of his greatest motif. This, just to describe the painting, it's a painting of Mont Saint-Victoire, which is a mountain in the south of France next. He painted this a number of times over the course of his career. This comes from a series of eight that he did in the 1880s, looking at it from different vantage points. And this is probably the closest view of the mountain. The views have trees that are obscuring the painting. There's a tree off to the right, but otherwise you can see it quite clearly. He broke down in a way that seems kind of old hat to some people now, but was truly revolutionary. And I think if you care for Cubism or you care for Brock or Picasso, you see a direct line from what Cezanne was doing at Monson Victoire and at Lestac and what the Cubists were doing in 1909, 1910, 1911, 1912. Why it's worth $120 if you believe, as I do, and others, that he is the father of modern art more than any of the other artists of his generation. And you look at what his working practice was, which was solid, flattened architectural strokes, where he's building up an image slowly, bit by bit, not with rapid, impressionistic manner. This is the summa of that, of, again, both the greatest motif, the purest motif, the clearest view of this great view. And then this is purely subjective as it is with any work of art. It's breathtakingly beautiful in person. The auction will take place at Christie's Rockefeller Center headquarters in New York on November 9th and 10th. It's pretty much guaranteed to make art market history. Who exactly are the potential buyers for works with these kinds of nosebleed prices? The very top works in the collection, regionally, it's virtually every corner of the globe. There's not a single one of the works, let's say, 
over $50 million where there is not an audience in Asia, Europe, America, the Middle East. You could apply that uniformly across those works. I think in terms of what the profile of the buyer is, it's obviously anyone who has traditionally collected works of art at the highest levels. It's people who have the means to, but aspire to, and everything in between. I think the difference between this and other auctions is if you're looking for, let's say, an object like the Sarawak, truly a holy grail painting, if you miss this sale, there is no tomorrow. The Allen Collection treasures will be on display at Christie's Galleries at Rockefeller Center through November 8th. It's worth a look. It may be the last time these works will be shown in public for a long, long time. Next week, we'll watch as the artworks that Allen assembled over decades find new homes in the span of just a few short hours. Allen often described himself as a steward. Soon, new stewards will make his works part of their own unique collections, and the cycle will begin again. That's it for this week's episode. A very special thank you to Maria Lewin and Max Carter. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.